Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, almost two-thirds of opioid overdoses in Hamilton have involved residents in the lower city. What can be done about the rise of gun violence in the U.S.? And President Donald Trump is going to visit Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas today in the wake of weekend shootings. Will it do any good? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to talk about uh, an ongoing concern and a problem that, uh, well, is is a major problem. Some suggest even a crisis. Almost two-thirds of opioid overdoses in this city involve residents in the lower part of the city, the old downtown of Hamilton, of course. Uh, data, uh, this is uh, data that was gathered, of course, during the SPEC and uh, their uh, series over the last couple of years about dealing with poverty and uh, dealing with challenges in the city. But the question, obviously, that has to be asked here is, uh, are we doing enough to try to curb this. The numbers in Hamilton are staggering, quite frankly, and higher than the provincial average. Jason Farr is the counselor for that area in Ward 2 in downtown. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the issue. Uh, Jay, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. This is a really, I, I guess, a confirmation of stuff that you and I have already talked about, that there's, there's a concentration of, of, of uh, the, the, the poor people that, of course, are stumbling along trying from day to day to survive because of the, their, their addiction to painkillers and things of this nature. Um, and and I, I guess the, I want to ask you the very question I think everybody's asking, are we doing enough? Uh, well, clearly when we're seeing uh, the statistics, and first and foremost, I think there's this confirmation that we're talking about here, Bill, due in large part uh, by the good investigative journalism of uh, Mr. Buston, the Hamilton Spectator. Mm-hmm. So credit to Steve, who puts uh, numbers and graphs and, and names and faces and neighborhoods uh, all in one place, the spec, and allows us to, uh, you know, in a more uh, concise way, sort of uh, as a community, as a people in Hamilton, uh, take a look at uh, exactly where and what the problems are. So uh, hats off to Steve's continued uh, work after 10 years of the original code uh, read. Uh, so I would answer your question. Yeah, I, I, We're clearly not doing enough in this community. Perhaps other communities, Rust Belt communities, uh, are, are faced with the same challenges, particularly in their older parts of the city. And uh, that's where the focus is here, I'm sure, with most of our conversation. You're talking to the downtown councillor. But the other question I might have especially after 10 years. And, and Bill, you and I spoke uh, when when Steve wrote his first review a couple of months ago of what's gone on over the last 10 years and really only one category of 10 that were looked at. Uh, we put a dent in. We, we made some progress. The rest, we were going the wrong direction. So one of the questions I asked then and I continue to ask now is, what have we done and do we need to be looking at uh, certain areas in different ways? Certainly we have very qualified qualified people in, in our, our EMS, our ECS, our, our, our public health. There's a lot of folks at the Hamilton collaborating with McMaster University who, who Steve Bust collaborates with regularly and other huge partners in the community who very uh, clearly care about the, these issues, these social determinants of health issues. But, you know, for 10 years we've invested as taxpayers, frankly, millions and millions and millions of dollars in, in direct spending to tackle issues and even in, in spending on, in peripheral ways, hiring certain people who we feel 
would be most effective in leading uh, uh, teams to to tackle specific issues related to the Code Red series. So I think, you know, after 10 years, when, when someone like Steve can step forward, spend a great deal of time and energy working with partners in the community to review these issues, we could do the same, and, and certainly those are questions that I'm, I'm, I have been asking for the last few months, and I'm hopeful for some responses uh, uh, pretty soon, whether it's from, from health or even, uh, believe it or not, our own, um, our own auditor, our own external auditor with the city of Hamilton, who, could, who, who I think would be giddy to sort of tackle this work. He's more than qualified on you know, where, where we put dollars and, and why wasn't it effective, and certainly when you're asking those questions, those are auditing type questions. And I think they're probably the most important because it's related to public health. Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Yesterday on the program, we talked about uh, the, the hotline that's being established now to mm-hmm. try to, to get value for dollar and to try to create some sense of transparency. And I, I know that you're fully supportive of that idea. I wouldn't be at all surprised if a number of those calls to that hotline are going to be pertaining to some of the issues that are happening in downtown. Opioids is, is one of them, but I mean, we, we're talking about housing, affordable housing, a number yeah. of different issues like this. Uh, rental properties and and a number of, of of concerns that you've got right now and I know I know we've talked to the medical officer of health we've talked to dr. Richardson about this uh, we've talked to a number of staff people but at the same time when you see these numbers uh, and and again as you've indicated it looks to a certain extent as if you're spinning your wheels and not for lack of trying but I mean I, I guess what we have to ask ourselves now is with what the city has done in the last 10 years Jay are you putting the resources in the right spot yeah, and, and that's exactly where my focus is. You know, it's it's not something any of us are proud of uh, to see these statistically, for the most part, to see these statistics go in the wrong direction. So you, you do need to take a look at what you've done, what has been effective, what, what may be because of investments take some time. Uh, effective in the near or or midterm, um, and we should keep doing. And other things where maybe it would have been smarter to uh, invest in this direction or that direction. I don't have, obviously, any of the answers right now, to be totally frank, Bill, but I think we have started the conversation already internally here at City Hall. And I think within the coming months, we should at least uh, have some message to the public that we are reviewing what we've done because it has not been uh, successful. And and frankly, it has not been for a lack of effort. And you've talked to the Paul Johnsons over the years, the the Terry Cooks over the years, the Docs from from McMaster, uh, Steve himself, and so many other partners. Uh, uh, Dr. Richardson, I've heard many of your conversations. This is an important issue in our community, and obviously CHML is going to cover it uh, broadly. But it is 10 years, statistically again, and you can, you can hear it in my voice. It really bothers me that, that we haven't succeeded given the, the, the concerted effort by so many people and so many teams and leaders in and outside City Hall as well. These partnerships you know, haven't been all, all as effective as we would have hoped for, especially in the first few years of the 10 years where we paid very close attention to this, where we changed literally, we started the neighborhood program. We hired certain individuals. Uh, uh, to, to, to focus and tackle the, uh, these issues due to their expertise. And so, you know, when we're looking at what we're looking at, even today, and this is just yet another uh, review today, I'm sure Steve will have more, Code Red, 10 years later. The things that, the, that, that maybe some of us elected officials aren't, aren't uh, uh, evaluating, but you read about in the series, uh, Dr. O'Shea, as you probably um, 
learned, and you've probably spoken to him in the past, this mm-hmm. is the doc who infectious diseases, internal medicine, and he deals mostly with uh, the vulnerable population. Well, he said today that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of deaths, opioid-related deaths in his determination that are associated to addiction-related infections or suicides that aren't counted in Steve's totals and the work that's being done on the Code Red series. So, uh, you know, that's one of the most alarming things that, you know, that we're learning today when, when we think about, you know, you know, patients who, I think there was a reference to someone who had an issue with a heart valve who initially uh, entered the hospital uh, with an opioid-related crisis, but it was uh, the work on the heart and the valve that ultimately caused the, the untimely death, and that's not counted statistically. So where are we even there? I mean, what we're looking at today is alarming enough, particularly with the lower city bill. It's even more alarming when you have very qualified people like Dr. O'Shea suggesting it could be even higher. Well, and I guess what we have to ask ourselves here is where are you going next? I mean, it's uh, the easy answer is, well, we should put more money into this. And, and you know that that's going to be somewhat of a challenge. I mean, the provincial government's already talked about some cutbacks to public health that I'm sure are going to have some impacts on some of the strategies that you want to employ down there. Uh, you need partnerships, and that includes the federal and the, the provincial government, uh, to suggest that we can do this all by ourselves within the city, within the budget that's allotted already right now, I think is, is really, uh, that's, that's a rather naive approach. And I know that's not your approach to this right now, but it seems to be uh, where we are. Um, and, you know, when you start looking to the province and the federal government and say, are you guys going to help out here? Uh, we're not getting much response. No, I mean, there are areas. A, on, on answering your question, I've already had conversations with our, our, our auditor, our internal, I think I called him external, Charles Brown earlier, and you talked about uh, the, the, the auditing that he's doing now community-wide and asking, you know, folks to participate when they catch fraud, and I think that's a great program that he himself initiated. He's a, he's a doer, and, and, and he's fascinated by the question that I asked. After actually speaking with you some months back on the Steve Buse column here, Bill, what, what would take to take a look at the investments we made in the last 10 years, take a look at those partnerships, take a look at the ideas that we invested in some cases millions of taxpayers' dollars into that weren't effective, where those ideas came from, and where we might consider uh, making making investments that, that pr- prove to be more uh, fruitful. And, and uh, that's that's a conversation I think he's, you know, we've already had, and it's, a, it's, a, it's not a direction at this point, but it's certainly something that he's qualified to do. B, and as you and I have talked about in the past, we do have at least uh, federally uh, uh, some commitments, and, and provincially, once the application is set uh, to, to do that, what we've been trying to do for some months now, uh, produce a, a full-time, more um, in line with uh, public health direction, uh, opioid uh, safe injection and treatment site. So we're closing in on a location, Bill. I can't offer much more right there. Once we have that, we can put the application to the province for the 100% funding. Council has already resolved to head in this direction. We've already uh, associated where the best location is and with returns with respect to a map in, in the wards two and three area. And uh, we're, we're closing in on that. And certainly we do have federal 
and provincial help potentially. We certainly qualify anyway, Bill. So there there are areas where you know we have some very smart people municipally, particularly working out of public health with a lot of other municipal partners, both in, internally and externally, who are already well prepared to put that application out there and receive the the funds and support from both the provincial and federal uh, level for these sites. And but build. but that particular subject is almost uh, symptomatic of some of the larger problems, though, Jay. Because look at how long it's taken. And there has been pushback, uh, not on council, thankfully, but members of the community. As you've reached out to some of those uh, uh, proposed partners, anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them say, no, we don't want any part of that. We don't want that there. We don't want this here. There's a lot of nimbyism that that seems to be associated with this. And until we overcome that, I don't know that we're going to actually be able to crack this nut. Well, it's it, that has been one of the most unfortunate and in some cases surprising for me parts because some of these are organizations, and I'm not going to name them, but uh, some folks are associated to organizations who have been doing traditionally for decades great work that is aligned with uh, this very issue, with, with overdose issues and, and opioid-related overdose issues. So hopeful that, uh, and I, I don't want to name them because it's not really, uh, it, it's not at a point where we're getting an all flat out no i think it's just about getting together coming to uh, 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 terms sitting at the same table and 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 best uh, uh, elaborating uh, what we know from either side and find some middle ground and, and and I think some common sense will definitely prevail because there's some pretty smart people like I say on both sides of this so I I I I, I, I remain positive what's frustrating is is the length of time it takes fortunately specific to opioid uh, uh, safe consumption and treatment we obviously do already have a location with Urban Core doing a very good job downtown. Uh, at John and Rebecca, the former bus station. So it's not like we are without in this community, but we do know in in time that location is going to move to about the Sherman and uh, or the Wentworth and, and uh, Cannon area. So 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 we're actively engaging uh, on, on all fronts to try to make it happen. And I think I heard yesterday, Bill, that we actually statistically have seen a drop in in, in opioid related deaths over the course of the last few months in in this area. Uh, that said. There, there, there are many things relatable to that, but uh, one might surmise, if one wants to look at the glass half full, that it is effective, the safe uh, injection and treatment sites, that it is preventing opioid-related deaths. Uh, time will tell. That it tends to be a roller coaster ride, but when you're looking at, you know, statistically opioid overdoses in Hamilton continuing to go up from 2012, as Steve reports today, uh, through 2017, 335 deaths were well above the provincial average. We had 88 in 2017, and he didn't report on it, but he mentions it in in the Code Red 10 years later uh, report today. In 2018, that 88 from 2017, opioid-related deaths, most of them here in the heart of the city, went up to 122. So, So overall averages continue to rise, notwithstanding every now and again we see a blip, and we're hopeful that those blips represent sort of some long-term changes in, in with re, with relation to what is clearly, and I think you agree, Bill, a crisis. Well, absolutely. And uh, I, I guess it doesn't really help the situation either when the Premier doesn't seem to have that much faith in the idea about safe injection sites either, at least with, with what he's told us over the last year and a half or so anyway. Uh, it'd be nice and probably much more fruitful if we had everybody on the same page. Uh, absolutely. I mean... 
we do have that opportunity to apply. I, I don't want to rock that boat uh, the, the, because the, they would be the 100% funders. That, 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 that That's at least for the safe injection and consumption site. The prevailing issues related to opioid uh, uh, use, opioid death. Uh, he, uh, it seems that the current Ontario government is focusing on treatment, and that's fine. We put that in the, the overall objectives of these safe injection sites, now called safe injection treatment sites. However, uh, more compassion from every every uh, corner, obviously, would would be of uh, great assistance to all of us. We, I, like I say, very very dedicated uh, uh, people. Some of these meetings that I have right here in my office with Michelle Baird and and and, and even her partner, Dr. Jill from the uh, the Social Health Network and others, it gets pretty emotional. I mean, there are some folks that are are wearing their hearts on their sleeves and and are very very dedicated to this, and and day in day out, you know, hitting roadblocks and climbing over them. And and so it's 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 I can tell you from a municipal level there is a lot of folks that are are focused and dedicated on this and to go full circle on our conversation it is always hopeful to see these as much as they're hard to look at Bill ten years later the code red report from Steve and the Hamilton Spectator and the work they're doing collaboratively with McMaster Health Sciences is 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 key well it, it absolutely is and people. and it, we we have to have those numbers and we have to have that barometer but uh, clearly an awful lot of work uh, still to be done on this uh, Jason Farr of course is the counselor for downtown Jay as always thanks for the time today thank you Bill you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we mentioned uh, later on today, President Trump will be visiting uh, the two sites uh, where the violence occurred, the mass murders occurred uh, this past weekend, El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio. Uh, we'll cover that story in a little more depth uh, later on in the program. But uh, what, uh, of course, has happened as a result of those tragic incidents uh, is another call, uh, numerous calls, as a matter of fact, for gun control south of the border. Now, I know, I know this is not the first time we've had conversations like this, and there's a pattern that develops after some of these terrible, terrible incidents, whether it's Sandy Hook or the, the killings that have occurred in, in places of worship anyplace else. Uh, there's, there is shock. There is grief. There is sadness and anger. There's a call to action to do something about it. And then, usually, nothing. For one reason or another, politicians just seem to cower and go away and expect that, well, we're going to forget about this until the next incident occurs. But is this the tipping point? Is this past weekend actually going to be a catalyst for that kind of change? Joining us to talk about this is Jillian Peterson with The Violence Project. And uh, first of all, Jillian, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what has happened and, and whether or not uh, what we saw in El Paso and Dayton is is going to be a game changer for this. As I mentioned, and I'm not trying to be overly cynical about this, uh, there is sincere grief. And aside from the, the platitudes of thoughts and prayers for the victims, etc., there are those that sincerely want to see some change here. Do, do you get any sense at all that it might happen this time? Um, I hope it will. It's, I agree with you. We have these conversations and then they tend to fade. I will say it feels a little different this time just in terms of what we're talking about. So we've been doing a study of mass shootings and looking at the life histories of mass shootings since 1966. Um, and we've found these four main themes that you see across mass shootings. So early childhood trauma, crisis point and suicidality, having a script and having your feelings validated and then means and access. And so we wrote a piece for the LA Times that looked at how do you prevent at each of those four stages. And we've been getting a lot of interest in thinking about prevention more proactively. So certainly talking about 
guns and red flag laws, but also talking about things we could be doing further back to prevent people from getting to that point. Well, and, and it's a much more holistic approach, isn't it? I understand, and I'm not suggesting that, that gun control is going to be the be-all and end-all of something like this, because there are other issues. Uh, and we've heard, I guess, a number of analysts over the last 48 hours, uh, because of the incidents that happened in, in Dayton and in El Paso, Jillian, uh, where they suggest that, look, at, you know, these are planned events. I mean, whoever the perpetrators are in, in these particular events, uh, plan this, whether they do it long-term or short-term. And there is a period of time between the time that they decide they're going to do something and the time they actually carry that out that perhaps some sort of an intervention might be helpful. Yeah, so we found that in about 80% of mass shootings, the perpetrator leaks the plans ahead of time. So that's either telling someone, posting about it online, but very explicitly gives signs that this is going to happen. So one um, policy that's getting a lot of attention right now is these red flag laws, which is the idea that police would have the ability to go in and remove guns from people who are at risk of hurting themselves or others so that people in this crisis point um, who are saying they might do this, there's something that can be done on the law enforcement side to prevent it from happening. And I heard that yesterday as well, that uh, that that's something that's being floated right now. Uh, but let's uh, cut right to the quick here. There has to be a political reality to this, too. Do you get the sense that there is an appetite within Congress right now to actually enact some of these things or at least have a discussion about it? Um, I do. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> you know, um, it's hard to know. Um, these, these tend to fade as the news cycle fades. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of attention and then it fades. So hopefully we can keep up um, the conversation even in the following weeks. But the president was talking about a number of sort of policies in his press conference a couple of days ago, talking about things like, you know, mental health care, crisis points, red flag laws, and I'm hoping that traction keeps going. Yeah, some of the things that actually have been said by some of the political leaders uh, uh, are, are rather interesting because at least there's a discussion that's going on. And in the past, even after the tragedy in Las Vegas a couple of years ago, uh, it, it just seemed as if politicians didn't want to be a part of this. They didn't want to be a part of the conversation. But uh, when when the, the president himself starts suggesting that maybe it's time for some sort of a legislation, uh, do you feel hopeful that may actually spur that conversation in in the Congress? Um, I do, and you know, I'm a I'm a psychologist. I'm a researcher, so I'm a person who gathers data and puts it together. And now that we are having some of this data, right? We now have data sets. We can say with confidence what percentage of people were in crisis or were suicidal or exactly how they were getting their guns or how many people knew about it ahead of time. And so I hope that data can move this forward. So it's not grounded in emotion and it's not grounded in politics. But when you really just focus on here's what we know and based on what we know, here's how you could prevent it it's harder to argue, and I think it's easier to move forward. There is legislation that's been proposed in the past, and, and I know there is a, a number of d- different attempts, bipartisan attempts, actually, to try to craft some legislation in this. Uh, is there a, a template, Jillian, that, that, that they could lean to and say, look, this is a good start? Well, you know, our data is showing kind of these four intervention points. So one would be certainly access to weapons, and so things like red flag laws, universal background checks, age restrictions, Um, permit to purchase wait periods, those things we know would be helpful. Um, But also looking at things like 
how social media companies can be held accountable for the spread of things like manifestos online and looking at how we can train people to identify people in crisis and set up systems for reporting. And then even going farther back, can we talk about things like social emotional learning in schools and um, school-based mental health to help with sort of the early childhood trauma stuff? So I think we do have sort of a blueprint for how we could do this. And it's complex. You can't pull out any one piece. And I don't know if any one thing is going to truly fix this. I think it's embracing that complexity. One of the other elements to this, obviously, as you mentioned, has to be tracking and some sort of a methodology so that you can, as you say, maybe hopefully intervene uh, before these events actually do occur. Uh, after 9-11 and, and some subsequent uh, concerns, of course, about uh, uh, safety and public safety, uh, there was, of course, the idea of, of a, a terror network that was set up here to try to track. And, of course, we all know about the Five Eyes, the countries that basically are sharing information about, uh, about international terrorism. But what has happened this past weekend, Jillian, as you know, has also, uh, I think, spurred a conversation to the border about perhaps looking at something like domestic terrorism. And I know some people are a little shy uh, to actually label it as such, but the fact that there is a threat within, uh, how do you set up a network to, to, to be able to monitor those sorts of things, as you say, for people that may post things, as they often do? I know the, these two individuals uh, from this past weekend, uh, there were signs. And, and I guess what we have to ask ourselves is, is uh, do we have the resources to be able to, to track this and to find out these things before they actually do occur? You know, I think... Again, so I'm a psychologist, so I think about this a little bit different, right? When someone posts something like that, I think we actually are decent at identifying like this is a threatening post. Then it becomes what do you do with that, right? And so typically we have the law enforcement goes and checks it out and decides, is it a credible threat? Does this person truly have weapons and a plan to do this or is a non-credible threat? A credible threat can be criminally charged. A non-credible threat, they walk away. Um, What we're finding is we need to be doing a lot more there. Um, because if someone's posting that, we're finding they're actively suicidal, right? They're in a state of crisis, and they're saying, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. That's a way of saying I'm thinking about ending my life. I'm thinking about going out in this blaze of glory. How do we have resources then in place for that person and intervention strategies to get them out of it? Because um, even if you do arrest them and lock them up for a year, that doesn't solve the problem. And so we're seeing that in schools, right? Schools tend to expel or suspend students who say things, and then they come back and they do it. That's actually adds fuel to the fire and intensifies the grievance. So I think from a psychological perspective, we have to think deeper about why people are saying this and how do we get them the help they need to get out of this place. With uh, Jillian Peterson from The Violence Project. Jillian, there's a law in California that uh, I'm wondering if, if, if this there's uh, an opportunity for, for that to, to be expanded. Uh, and, and that is a very much along the lines of what you were talking about, about if there are interventions and if there are people that have been identified as, as at risk because of this, uh, that the authorities can actually move in and take their firearms away from them until such time as they receive proper help and treatment uh, for whatever the case might be, whatever the mental health issue might be. And I know that it's been challenged uh, vis-a-vis the Second Amendment, and uh, it seems to be held up in court so far anyway uh, by those that have tried to challenge it right now. Uh, do, you, do you look at something like that and say that's something that we could actually adopt on a national level? Yeah, I do. And the data would say that that might actually be effective, that if people are giving all these signs of saying that they're at risk for asserting self or others, um, that would be a time take away the ability to do it, take away the weapons, 
sometimes it only takes a few weeks to get through that point. You could be in a very different spot in six months, but to actually have the ability to go in and remove weaponry would be really helpful. Now, I do think there's a slippery slope argument about, you know, do you want to just be taking guns away from people who are, you know, what's, what's the criteria? I Mm -hmm. think it gets tricky. Um, But I do think that is something that is getting national attention right now and people are coming out and supporting it. One of the things that I think is always maybe a a major roadblock anytime there's a debate about gun control or about anything like this uh, is that very word ban, that three-letter word that uh, that people just seem to bristle at. Uh, They don't like people that are going to take their guns away from them. And we've heard some of that political rhetoric, of course, in past political campaigns. We're sure to hear it, I guess, as you head towards the election in 2020 as well. But but if we can move away from that word and simply talk about gun control, which I think is what most people on both sides of the House are talking about right now, and and that includes things like like uh, as you say, a buyback program, uh, background checks, things of that nature. Uh, I don't know that anybody's actually saying take their guns away. I think uh, well, Senator Booker might be about the only one that's being adamant about that, but others are kind of looking for some middle ground here, aren't they? Yeah, and I think we're getting to the middle ground conversation, and it, you know we have now the data that we can show exactly where people are getting their guns. So, for example, in uh, we found for school shooters, so K-12 through school shooters, we looked at 67 of them since 1999. Over the last 20 years, 80% of them are getting their guns from family members. Um, they're not going out and purchasing them. So really the intervention point there is safe storage and sort of public health campa- campaigns around safe storage or talking to parents whose kids are in crisis versus in workplace shooters, the vast majority are using legally owned handguns Um, And in that case, red flag laws would probably be the best thing. And then you have other ones where it does seem like universal background checks would have caught some of these individuals um, and limited their ability to purchase before the act. So I think using that data to ground the conversation and having more nuanced conversations about weapons is helpful and is moving us in the right direction. I I, I do, for the sake of our listeners here in in Canada, though, I want to make people aware of the fact that, Julie, when we talk about some of the challenges and some of the problems, uh, I, I don't want to paint a picture that, that, that there's no movement at all here. There are some states that have been pretty progressive about this, haven't there? Um, yeah, there's some. Um, not enough, but some. Not enough. Yeah, right. Yes, we are seeing things move a bit. And again, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm a researcher. So I am just pushing getting the data out there so that we can start creating policies based on that are data-driven and evidence-based rather than sort of fueled by emotion. What about that? I, I know you're not a politician, but obviously there is a political reality to this. And one of those political realities is is that uh, you're on the cusp of a federal election, of course, in 2020. We we know about that. We've already seen an, an, enough stories and enough evidence about what's happening. Uh, there's always a reticence by uh, politicians that want to get reelected to actually st- steer away from controversial issues. And I don't know if there's anything uh, near as controversial as as a gun control debate that's going on right now. Uh, Yet I still hear from some people that say, look, as you mentioned, there are draft bills that are available, bipartisan uh, bills that have already been drafted and being proposed right now. They could rush this thing through the Senate if they wanted to. But do you know that there's a political will now? I mean, we haven't heard from uh, from Senator McConnell, of course, the leader uh, in the Senate, the Republican leader in the Senate right now. Uh, Senator Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, obviously says, yeah, we, ha- we need to get this done yesterday. But we're looking, I guess, for at this point uh, for some reaction from, from the majority in the Senate right now to see whether or not they actually want to move on this. Any any word on that at all? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. 
Um, what I do know is from based on the model that we kind of put out and the data that we put out, um, looking at sort of these four pieces, childhood trauma and crisis and validation and access to weapons, we are getting a ton of support from both sides. And we are seeing politicians on both sides using that model um, because it's more nuanced and because it's there's something in there that sort of everybody can grab onto. Um, I I have no idea if it will actually move through the Senate at this point or this is going to be, I'm sure this will be something that is a hot topic as we move into the election. Well, and, and that's what we're looking for, obviously. I mean, we've got our issues here, as I'm sure you've heard. We had a, a terrible incident in Toronto. Of course, 11 people shot this past weekend in Toronto alone and, and other violent incidents that occurred. This is the, not a typical problem that's just south of the border. This is this is a, a problem right across North America that, that we need to deal with. And, and I think what we're looking for here is, is, is at least to have the discussion and the debate. And, and I get the sense anyway from some of the comments I've heard over the last little while, the last couple of days especially, Jillian, that there seems to be a mood to at least have the discussion right now, whereas before people usually just put their hands up and say, don't even talk about it. Yeah, I would agree. This feels different. And I think because we had three within a week, they were all really high body counts. Um, it was the worst cluster that we've ever had. I think it's hitting people in the gut in a different way. Well, uh, today's going to be a very important day. Obviously, the president making, uh, well, two trips, obviously, one to El Paso, one to Dayton. Uh, and obviously, some of the responses that we're going to hear from the people in Washington over the next 24 to 48 hours, I think is going to be pivotal in this. Yes, I would agree. Um, we will see the reaction that this has. I mean, the other piece of this is there's a lot of conversation about the hateful rhetoric. Um, and what we find is, you know, people who do this search for validation for their ideas. And it used to be that you really had to go to the dark corners of the Internet to find validation for some of this sort of hateful speech and thinking. And now it is more public. Uh, you don't have to search as hard for that. And so that, I think, is changing the nature of these acts. And I think people are also really ready to talk about that piece of it. Well, and I think that's an important part of the discussion, isn't it? I mean, as, as I th I'm sure a number of politicians have already articulated, words do matter. And and you, you don't necessarily blame the, the people that are saying things and say, well, they're the ones that caused this. But you don't know what those words are going to do. You don't know what kind of an impact they're going to have on a certain individual. And, and, and obviously that has to be part of that. And whether that's patrolling social media sites or whatever the case might be, but, but maybe the most, since we've, we're already talking about prevention here, maybe the most preventative thing they could do is, is think before you talk or think before you tweet. Right. Absolutely. And I think that is also something that we can talk to the media about, talk to the general public about even how you consume media, how you share violent content, how you share hateful speech, how you share things like manifestos and trying to control some of that. I mean, these really these events are socially contagious. It is a contagion and that's why they happen in clusters. And so how do we stop that contagion? And certainly the rhetoric coming out of leadership is super important in that. It's uh, called the Violent Project, uh, Violence Project, rather. If you want to Google that, you get some. Uh, go to the webpage, and there's some fascinating information that uh, I think uh, substantiates an awful lot of what you've been talking about. Jillian, thank you so much for the time. It was great having you on the program today. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Jillian Peterson from the Violence Project. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we've mentioned, uh, this is a busy day in the States. Uh, in the last hour, we talked with Jillian Peterson from the Violence Project. Uh, about the attempts at gun control south of the border. Uh, one of the main factors in that discussion and that debate is going to be political leadership. 
Uh, and from that standpoint, we talk about what Donald Trump is going to be doing and what he is saying. And sadly, as has been the case oftentimes with uh, the U.S. president, uh, what he writes and what he tweets about and what he actually says in prepared statements are usually two different things, and it seems to be the case now. Today he will be going to El Paso, Texas, and to Dayton, Ohio, uh, the site of those massacres that occurred this past weekend. Is it going to help or hurt the situation? Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us here in studio to talk about this. Thanks for coming in today on a busy, busy day. I know you've been all over the province already, <laughs> it seems like, uh, before 10 o'clock in the morning. Hey, I leave at 5, Bill, but my day ends early. So, <laughs> give, me, uh, give me your read on, on, obviously, the tragedy itself, but the response to the tragedy and what has happened in some of the, uh, well, the confrontation that seems to be going on right now between Donald Trump and others, especially Beto O'Rourke. Well, uh, so particularly to that, uh, because in the manifesto by the shooter in El Paso, uh, there was actual language used that mirrors the language that Trump has used, talking about an invasion of Mexicans. Um, and so Beto and many others, even a Republican, um, have come out and said there is, a, uh, there is not, a, not a direct line in the sense of Trump is not directly responsible for pulling the trigger, but there is a line between what he has been doing to whip up his base and the racial, the racist things that he has been saying uh, and and what this this particular killer was motivated by. And, and that is deeply distressing. And so what we're seeing is people like Beto O'Rourke uh, in a moment of absolute frustration, you know, uh, gave a very real response to the media when they said, you know, is there some sort of connection here? And he said, you know, um, WTF. WTF. Uh, he used the words. He goes, obviously, there is. And and so... He, he actually almost chided the, the journalists there, saying, you, you guys aren't doing your job. And he deserved to chide them, and they deserved to be chided. I mean, how much more evidence does a rational person need, even a, a reporter who's trying to be unbiased, to be able to make draw that kind of connection. And white supremacy and hate is flaring up around the world. Uh, and a lot of there's a lot of different theories about as to why, but we've even seen it here in Hamilton. And we know from history that the only thing, uh, and one of the only things that has to happen, is that leaders speak up unequivocally, immediately, and in a sustained way against it. Uh, you, you cannot let it, um, you know, put seeds in. And so uh, Trump not only has not stood up against the white supremacy that has been roiling in the U.S. and all the domestic terrorism spawned by white supremacy in the last couple of years. Uh, but he has been seen to be encouraging it. And so he did do a, um, a teleprompter speech where he denounced it, and he did have his chief of staff on the shows on Sunday denouncing mm -hmm. it in the strongest terms. However, uh, that does not line up. Uh, the, it, it, for people who watch his rallies and watch his Twitter feed, the id, if you will, uh, it does not line up with what he said at that speech. So was it good that he gave those remarks to try to soothe the nation and unify them? Sure, it was good messaging. Uh, going to El Paso and uh, Dayton, is it something a president should do in these moments? Yes. But the problem with Trump is that it doesn't line up uh, and people aren't stupid. And I think people are getting very tired of the attempt at saying one thing here for maybe some of the Main Street front pages, like the New York Times covered his teleprompter address, uh, and then actually saying what he means and, and revving up this, this racial hatred and this cover for white supremacy. Uh, so there needs to be more 
than just speeches today. And I expect that the news feeds are going to be rightly covering the protests that he's going to face. Because I think Americans, while they'll never give up their right to carry arms and they'll they'll never give up their love for the gun, uh, I think that Americans are at a point with two mass shootings in 24 hours that they want to see some change. And there is some legislation that could go through. And, and he's made some comments and, and in the prepared statements that maybe it is time to, to talk about that sort of, of legislation, at least for some gun control. Uh, but the person who has been, I guess, most evident by their silence right now is Mitch McConnell. I mean, nothing happens unless Mitch McConnell, uh, the Republican head of the Senate, decides, okay, we're going to do something about this. He hasn't said a word about this. Well, and this is super problematic because there is bipartisan legislation that made it through the House around the red flag law and something that Trump has even said that he would look at supporting and that's basically being able to flag um, people who are exhibiting dangerous intentions or behaviors uh, and give sort of more powers to law enforcement. Uh, that could probably go through the Senate. It could probably get signed by Trump. So it would take Trump saying to Mitch McConnell, we, we can slide this one through, buddy. we got to do something before the next election because this could hand it to the Democrats. Democrats. I mean, if people are feeling sufficiently sick of 250 mass shootings so far this year, I'm not great at math. I think we're about halfway through the year, but that tells me we probably haven't had 250 days yet. I mean, we're talking a mass shooting a day or something in the United States. Other countries have video games. Other countries have the internet. Other countries have mental illness and opioid crisis. What they don't have is 250 mass shootings so far this year. Uh, the guns on the street and the assault rifles and the size of the magazines used, this was 100 bullets. These are military weapons, and uh, even the NRA members want extended background checks. And most of America, I think 90%, wants to get rid of assault rifles. So the public sentiment is there. If it rides through to the 2020 campaign, uh, if Trump doesn't do something real, some sort of action on this, he might actually end up losing because of it. So I think he's political enough to maybe get some something passed to show some sort of progress on the issue. But even a tweet that he issued just a couple of hours ago, as a matter of fact, once again, uh, it's CBC or CBS or others carrying this right now, uh, says the sick people, people that are mentally ill, mentally disturbed, they're the ones that are responsible for mass shootings. He still doesn't want to bring firearms into the conversation. Well, that is, And that's an NRA talking point, right? It's not the gun that pulls the trigger. It's the yeah. shooter. It's the crazy person. Guns whatever. don't kill people. Right. People, people kill, kill them, people. Yeah. All that nonsense. Um, one of the things that was seen in, uh, in what happened at the Walmart in a, is that the police were immediate in their response. They were there within a minute. But even with another good guy with a gun, couldn't stop this shooter with a military rifle that was meant to blow up people on the battlefield, right? Um, so that whole argument of let's make everything a hard target, let's arm everyone in the schools, all that NRA stuff they've been trying to push with the gun lobby to sell more guns, it, it, people aren't buying it. They're seeing evidence to the contrary. Uh, so Trump, I think, though, is less um, interested in pleasing the NRA than he is in staying in power. And so he is seen to turn on a pivot on uh, people and, and loyalties he has whenever it's in his in his own personal best interest. So I'm hoping in this particular case, his own personal best interest looks at the polls, looks at the numbers that will come out after this shooting in terms of public sentiment, and he'll realize as a populist that he's on the wrong side of a popular issue on this one. The bigger thing, though, that I think also hurts him is the fact that he has he has uh, really stirred up and helped uh, give cover and, and somewhat argue license to white supremacy and to nativism and to these very pernicious global narratives that are bubbling up around the world. And uh, I you know, people are scared. They're scared. Uh, there are travel warnings in J from the Japan consulate and others saying that Japan said, you know, the U.S. is a gun culture. Be prepared to be shot anywhere at any time. I mean, uh, come on. Th that has to, from a commercial point of view, uh, affect 
the United States. And I think that Republicans who went along for the ride, want to try this guy out, might be looking at that and his trade situation with China and everything else and saying, you know, this chaos is, is hurting business at some point. So uh, I think money talks and uh, you're going to see a lot of people targeting the money that supports Trump and his campaign and his advertising. What are we going to see later on today in Dayton and in El Paso? Both mayors have already gone on record and said, we'd rather you did not come. Right. Uh, they said, that, you know, we're the mayor. Yes, we will greet the president. The, 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 it's the office that they respect, not the individual. Uh, it's obviously going to have to be a very staged event in both communities. Well, you saw last night in the pouring rain, uh, thousands of people outside of Mitch McConnell's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are, when people are taking to the streets, it, almost instantaneously as kind of a visceral response, like we saw after the marching with the tiki torches, right? There well, was we saw a, it in Puerto Rico just yeah, last Yeah, that's right. Puerto Rico did a fabulous job. They actually coordinated with Puerto Ricans abroad all over the world, uh, which was a brilliant strategy. Um, so, But when people take to the streets in a spontaneous way, and we saw this in Hong Kong as well, there, it, it is the. I think the thing that maybe politicians fear the most, because when you when you have that kind of, um, of public intensity and the willingness to get out of our comfortable lives and our bubbles and our own problems and take to the streets for a bigger issue, I think that that's very frightening to any politician anywhere. Um, and so it it can it can take them out of government. It can change the tide. And I think we're seeing with this gun issue combined with the white supremacy and the racial attacks he's made on members of Congress and on the squad, um, you know, a lot of Republicans are simply not racist. And the one Republican who came out and said, our party is giving cover or, or helping with racism or the promulgation of hate. Um, and they kicked him out of the party in his state. But the point is, I don't think most Republicans signed up for that. Uh, they might have not looked at it, not wanted to see it because of the tax cuts and the rollback on re- restrictions and, and other things in terms of um, how to do their business and how to make money. I mean, Trump has been good for big business, but I, I have to believe that uh, fundamentally that's not the culture they want for their kids. That's not um, money that they want to be putting behind uh, somebody's campaign. I mean, there are ads running on Facebook using the same rhetoric that was used in the Shooter's Manifesto. You know, I cannot see corporate America wanting to put their money behind a president who is going to run so boldly on racist principles. Well, we've seen that even in El Paso, uh, where Julian Castro has actually published a list this morning of businesses that supported Trump and say, don't spend your money at these places. So there's a, there's a pushback happening now. Yeah, and you know what? Julian Castro um, got pushed back for that because people thought he was setting up these people uh, you know, as targets. Uh, the list was public. It was public knowledge. He contributes to campaigns. And his point was that he doesn't want any of these, these, these companies or their families targeted. What he wants is for them to realize that their money is going directly into campaigns that are talking about Mexican invasions and other racist things. And having just had a driver drive 10 10 hours to get to that Walmart right on the border where there would be a lot of Mexicans and to a soft target and to shoot them. I mean, how does any company... I'll put, you know, ideology aside, uh, unless you are okay with that, how do you how do you fund that, right? And I think that's a fair question. Uh, and so uh, America's in a bit of a moral dilemma. They ha- and it's good there's a, a, an election coming up because that means that this issue will get a lot more cover, a lot louder. There's a lot of candidates even today. Cory Booker's doing a speech. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a you know there's going to be a lot said about this, and you know Trump and his administration won't be able to run from it. Not when there is an active president presidential campaign revving up. But can he walk back? I mean, he's he is what he is. He said what he has said. Uh, when you use words like infestation and invasion, uh, you, you can't 
you can't undo that. And that clip of him at that rally in the panhandle saying, it's an invasion, folks, it's an invasion. What do we do to stop them? Someone said, shoot them. And he laughed and he said, only in the panhandle. <laughs> Can you get away with that, mm. right? That clip will be run all the way until people cast their ballots in 2020. Uh, it is incredibly damning in terms of a direct line between that kind of abiding of hatred and threats against immigrants uh, and what is happening, right? So can he walk it back in terms of his language? No, because his words mean absolutely nothing unless they're followed up with some consistency. So, I, And why, what I mean by that is we've heard consistently his his racial stuff, his, his race baiting, his divisive stuff. We've seen it, tons of tweets. Uh, we've heard a couple of speeches of, on unification. So the one outweighs the other in terms of the weight we put in his words. Can he say nice stuff today? Sure. But unless he puts some sort of legislation through, unless he signs something at his desk with one of his favorite photos, you know, people sitting around his desk or standing around him, unless he does something, even if it's just the red flag legislation, I don't think that he can convince anyone that he really cares about this issue. Uh, unless he, on his Twitter account, stops retweeting white supremacists and stops, um, you know, attacking people on racial insults and what he's been doing, I don't think people are going to believe him that he is not a racist. So actions fortunately speak louder than words and maybe he can put some actions through maybe he can tell the FBI you know your new priority is going to be domestic terrorism let's let's get rid of um, these these sites and these places that are festering this kind of white supremacy and let's do what we did after 9-11 you know which is, or with ISIS when they finally got around to ISIS in 2016 let's really really make it a priority he can do that as president and I think that would matter yeah, but he's got build, uh, bridges to build even with the FBI uh, after some of the comments he's made about, not just about uh, James Comey and about uh, Robert Mueller, but the FBI themselves but the, and the qu- FBI questioning wants, their credibility. But the FBI wants him to do this. They want him to prioritize domestic terrorism. They want to route out white supremacy and all of its evil manifestations. Uh, and so I think that despite everything he's done and all the bridges he's burned, you know, people are pragmatic. If, if you need to say, you know what, we don't agree on much of most things and you've done a lot of terror or said a lot of terrible things, we need to fix this together. And so I think that they would they would jump at that opportunity. Uh, so he can do some things here, and he can do some things without pushing his base too far away. Uh, that being said, it comes down to moral courage. It comes down to actual morality. You know, what are his intentions and what's in his heart? I don't know. But actions are what tell us what people believe. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.